Amen, amen. Man, and I'm glad to be back with y'all today, and to be out of the snow and, and out of the house and back here. And I hope you benefited uh, from Jesse's opening and sharing uh, to us from the Word last week and about Jacob, uh, Jacob and Esau, and just the vital role that he played in God fulfilling his word to Abraham, that his descendants would fill the earth, that they would be innumerable, that they would be uh, more in number than the stars of the sky. And so in Jacob, we, we began to see the promise that God gave to Abraham fulfilled. And, and what we're going to look at today is uh, really occupies a, a large chunk of the book of Genesis. It's all the way from chapter 37 through chapter 50. And it's the account uh, that we read of Joseph. Now, if, if you've grown up in church, there are a couple of things that you know about Joseph. One, you know that he has this amazing Technicolor dream coat. And two, you know he's the guy you look to if you want to know how to deal with temptation, if you want to know how to flee sin. But kind of beyond those things, we, we haven't really delved into the idea, and we haven't really spent a terrific amount of time uh, looking and studying and reflecting upon this life of Joseph. But one of the things that we're going to recognize today is that from Genesis chapter 37 through Genesis chapter 50, the Bible gives us a lot more about God than it does about Joseph. The character of God is unfolded over the life of Joseph. And Joseph, even as we reflect upon this, is not the main character in this story. Look even at verse 2 of chapter 37. It says, these are the generations of Jacob. And in Jacob, we see the unfolding grace and mercy of God visited upon this family, fulfilling the promise that God had made to Abraham. Hey, let me pray for us uh, once more as we prepare to study this word together. Father, you have given us your word. Uh, you have given it to us for our uh, refining. You have given it to us so that we might learn about you, so that we might hear from you. And God, I pray that as we enter into your word today, that that is what we would do, that we would be refined by your word, that we would hear from you in your word. God, I'm thankful that in Joseph we see the character of one who is deeply flawed, and in that we are able to see our own lives, men and women deeply flawed, waiting for the imprint and the healing of your gospel. So God, we're thankful for your gospel and how it heals us, how it draws sin from our lives, how it sanctifies us in the cross of Christ, and how we are redeemed in his cross. God, we are dependent upon your grace and your mercy. God, I pray today is that we, as we entered into this building, men and women heavy laden, weighed down by our sins and our shortcomings, our failures, our faults, and our fears, God, that we would lay them all down before you, that we would submit our lives ready and willing to be molded by you, ready and willing to hear from you. And God, we pray especially for those who've entered into this place with questions, wondering if this God is real. Does this God even care? Does this God, is he even capable to deal with the difficulties of their life? God, that today within this hearing, within this morning, that they would hear from heaven, that they would receive a word from your Holy Spirit, that they would be equipped, that they would be sanctified, that they would be redeemed, that they would experience salvation in the name of Jesus. God, would your spirit enter into this place? 
Would it guide our affections as we give our hearts and our thoughts to the careful study of your word? God, would that you would be glorified in this gathering. God, that you would guide the thoughts of my mind and the words of my mouth over these next moments we have together. We submit this time to you. In Christ's name, amen, amen. One of the things that that I found truly fascinating is that as you begin to look and reflect upon the life of Joseph, that, that so much of what happens to him is the result of what is contained with really in just the first 11 verses or so. I mean, so much of the, the madness of his life, so much of the unfortunateness of, of the, the difficulties that he faces really unfolds as a result of all that transpires within these first 11 verses. So let's, let's read through them and begin to investigate these things together. The text tells us these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Essentially, Joseph's out, and he's there with with some of his brothers, and he goes back to dad, and he tattles. I mean, this is what we kind of get from this idea, that he brings a bad report. He goes back in, and he characterizes his brothers in the worst way possible. There's no grace. There's no redemption. There's no dad. Well, they were kind of out there, and they're kind of doing this, but, but what he does is essentially go back in and say, You remember when you told them to go out and they're supposed to do this and this and this and this? Ah. They're not doing it. They're out there saying, Dad's never going to know, Dad's never going to care. Look, we just need to get this stuff done. If no one dies and everyone returns home, that's all Dad really cares about. And Dad, I'm here to tell you, these boys of yours and these other two women, you better keep a watch on them. You better watch out for them. Joseph recognizes the favoritism he receives from his father. He tattles on his brothers, and look at how the response is. Verse 3 says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Now this is, we get this idea of the many colors from the Septuagint, but likely what he's really referring to here is a tunic with really just long sleeves. But regardless, they walk out and they see Joseph. And any time he wore this amazing Technicolor dream coat, they said, Dad never made me a jacket like that. That jacket stood as a symbol of the favoritism that Jacob, that Israel, lavished upon Joseph. So every time they saw that, that was a reminder to them of how much more he loved their brother than he loved them. Look at what verse 4 says. It says, when their brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. Essentially, every time Joseph opened his mouth in front of his brothers, all they could pour back out was venom. And so he could be the nicest guy. He could say the nicest things like, hey, how are you? Good morning. And they're like, it's a terrible morning, you ingrate. How about you go cuddle back up with your amazing Technicolor dream coat and leave us alone. Go do us all a favor and die. And he's like, good morning. I guess not a good morning for you, okay. This is every time he opened his mouth, all they poured back out was venom. But then Joseph adds fuel to the fire. 
It says that then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more, as if there was room for it. He said to them, <laughs> I, had this, I had this dream, and y'all, it is the most amazing dream. You're going to love this dream. It's such a great dream. You are all in it. Each and every one of you, check out my dream. He said, behold, we are out there binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheave arose and stood upright. And so we're out there, and we're all working, and I'm, I'm just kind of whistling when I work. You guys know how I do. I'm out there with my dream coat on. I'm, I'm whistling and all the such forth, and because life's just so great. And my sheaves stands just stark straight upright. And then all your sheaves came and gathered around it, and so we're all there. And, and then you, your sheaves began to bow down to my sheaves. Man, it was the most amazing dream! You can feel the tension in the air. His brothers, his brothers said to them, are you indeed going to reign over us? Or indeed, are you going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Joseph's just piling hate on top of hate on top of hate. But he doesn't get it. So the text tells us, verse 9, then he dreamed another dream. And he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. <laughs> Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. The sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves down on the ground before you? Text says, and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this saying in his mind. See, inside the hubris of this dream and kind of the unbridled youth that we begin to see in Joseph, that, that he doesn't recognize how this dream might be seen as being mildly offensive to his brothers. Guys who already don't like him, they recognize that he's daddy's boy, that he's the favorite, that he's the golden child. And he keeps having these dreams that can be taken in no other way. I mean, like Freud's not lining up saying, oh, what do we have here? I mean, it doesn't take a genius to articulate the, what's the underlying factor of these dreams. These dreams show him high, show them low, whether they be in the sheaves or whether they be in the outer reaches of the universe. Joseph doesn't see it, but dad begins to think, maybe, maybe there's something there. Well, all the hatred begins to well up within the hearts of his brothers. They begin to think, man, we just really hate this guy. Is there something we can do? So lo and behold, one day they're out and they're working far from home, and dad sends Joseph out to check on his brothers. And so he goes to Shechem, and they're not there. And so then he mounts up, and he begins to head to Dothan, where his brother, he's told his brothers are. And when he approaches his brothers, what we read in verses 18 and 19 in the text says, And they saw him from afar, and they could hear him whistling as he came. And he came near to them, and they conspired against him to kill him. How much hatred does it take in your heart to want to kill your, fav your favored brother? How many times have you rehearsed within your mind the sin that you're planning to carry out and perpetrate against your brother if all of them would conspire together and say, let us kill him? So they said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Here comes the dreamer. 
first and paramount in their minds are the recountings of their sheaves bowing down to him. First and paramount in their minds are all the stars bowing down before him. Joseph the dreamer, Joseph the one who would rule over them. Joseph the one who kept putting himself in a place in a position of priority. Joseph the one who was daddy's favorite. So he comes up to him and they begin to abuse him. They strip him, they beat him, and they find an empty well and they throw him down in there. And as they're contemplating killing him, Reuben says to his brothers, listen, let's not kill him. But let's throw him down in this pit, all the while thinking in his mind, I'll go back later and I'll, I'll rescue and I'll redeem my brother. But what they do is they take his, his tunic and they, they uh, kill a goat and they put some of the blood on there and they devise this plot saying, listen, this is how we're going to get off scot-free. All we're going to do is we're going to go back. We've got his, his tunic that, that dad made him. It's clearly recognizable as being Joseph's tunic. We're going to take it. It's got the blood on there. And we're going to say, Dad, a wild animal came up and it, 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 it devoured him. That, that, that must be what happened. I mean, he's just a goner. We happened to grab a little bit of a shard of his clothing just so we could show you that it wasn't us, that it was in fact this, this, this wild, ravenous animal that came and got him. Dad, this must be what happened. So they throw him into the pit. And then along come some slave traders. Some men of Midian. And what we find is these men of Midian end up buying their brother. So they sell him into slavery. And then verse 36 of chapter 37 says, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So what we find within the midst of this is Reuben is unable to save his brother because he is sold into slavery and he is transferred from living there with his family to a foreign land. But one of the things that, that is unique that we begin to discover and we begin to see in the unfolding care and character of him is God's provision for him. So in chapter 39, as we, as we begin to see this unfold, look at verses 5 and 6. He's sold, he's owned by a captain of the guard. And verses 5 and 6 of chapter 39 says, From that time, he, speaking of Potiphar, it says, He made him an overseer in his house. And over all that he had, and the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all he had in his house and in the field. The blessing of God rested upon Joseph. And everything Joseph put his hand to, the blessing of God followed. So it says, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now listen to this description that we see of Joseph. It says, now Joseph was handsome in form and in appearance. Now the last person that we're told of is handsome or is beautiful in form and in appearance is Rachel in chapter 29 and verse 17, his mother. So what we see Moses doing carefully is going down and showing us how this this thread is weaved throughout. The favoritism that Jacob showed Rachel is now shown to Joseph, and we see the same thing showing up. But here, what we find is that his good looks 
would be the inciting incident for the difficulties he would soon experience. Because within Potiphar's house, and Potiphar was apparently a man who traveled uh, quite a bit, and he was gone from work a lot, and Potiphar's wife began to look around, and she began to get lonely when Potiphar was out of town. And some of those times when she'd get lonely, she'd be there kind of reclining on a settee, and she'd look over, and she'd say, Joseph! Mm-mm-mm. Because he was fine. In form and in appearance. That's what the word of God tells us. Joseph! But Joseph honored the Lord. Joseph spurned her advances. And every time that she came near him to, to put her advances upon him, Joseph would say, far be it from me to sin against my master and to sin against the Lord. My master has put everything in in his household underneath my charge. Far be it from me to sin against my master and to sin against the Lord. Well, this was all well and good the first few times that he rejected and spurned her advances. But as she began to communicate to Joseph, a woman has needs. And so one day Joseph's there and he walks in the household and he begins to look around and there are no other men in the household. And he's thinking, well, this is, this, is, this is not good. And the text tells it with such vivid language that she doesn't just come over and use her words and her womanly wiles to entice him and draw him near. She grabs the brother by his shirt. And she forcefully tries to wrangle him into this position. You must come and lie with me. And Joseph just hauls up out of there so fast and with so much force that she pulls his shirt clean off of him. Well, now he's gone and done it. Joseph pursued righteousness, but in pursuing righteousness, he left Potiphar's wife with an incriminating piece of evidence that she would use to attack him. So she goes before Potiphar, and she says, this Hebrew that you brought in here, he has mocked us, he has laughed at us, he has sought to abuse me, he has sought to take me. See here, I was saved as I grabbed off his clothing. And on the basis of Joseph's righteousness, on the basis of of his pursuing to honor the Lord, and on the basis of his pursuing to honor his master, he's thrown in jail. Completely innocent. He's thrown in jail. But still we see God honor Joseph. Still we see, look at chapter 39, verses 21 through 23. It says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Y'all, God is faithful. God continued to lavish his faithfulness upon Joseph in the middle of a trying and difficult ordeal. You'll remember in chapter 40 that Joseph encounters a a cupbearer and a baker who were formerly servants in Pharaoh's household, and Pharaoh, being the mercurial man that he is, 
grew to have disfavor upon them, so he threw them in jail. And then one day, Joseph's there, and he's going about his business, whistling while he works, minding all the affairs of the prison. And he begins to see that on the, the face of the cupbearer that he looked downtrodden. They looked like that something was wrong. And so Joseph goes over to him, and he says, hey, what's going on? He said, oh, man, I had, this, I had this dream. I, 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 I had this dream. He says, okay, well, 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 tell me the dream. And God in heaven will give you an interpretation. So he says, okay, so here's the deal. I had this dream. And so he goes on, he spins the dream. And, 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 and so Joseph says, oh, yeah, okay, so here's the interpretation of the dream. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. He says, that, that's amazing. What do you want? He says, man, just remember me when you're restored. Cupbearer says, of course. This is fantastic. So the baker hears it. He's just beside himself because he's also had a dream. So he goes over to Joseph. He says, check it out. So here's my dream. So he begins to unfold the dream. Joseph's sitting there. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Joseph says, okay, no problem. Here's the interpretation of your dream. In three days hence, Pharaoh's going to lift up your head also. And the baker's like, yes. And then he says, I wasn't done yet. He's going to hang you. The baker says, no. Well, three days later, their dreams come to pass. The cupbearer is restored to his position, and the baker is hung. But one of the things we find is the cupbearer did not remember his promise to Joseph. So for two more years, he sat in prison. For two more years, he displayed faithfulness. And then two years later, God sent a dream to Pharaoh. And in chapter 41, what we see is that Pharaoh begins to have a dream. So Pharaoh has this dream, and he's in the dream, he looks down on the Nile. And coming up from the Nile, there are seven cattle. And they are plump, and they are beautiful, and they're everything you want in cattle if you're taking them to the sale. And Pharaoh's dream goes on. He looks, and Coming up from the Nile, there are seven of the nastiest scab cattle you've ever seen. I mean, they are starved out in West Texas. They've not been fed in days. They are skinny, and the text tells us they are ugly. Well, these skinny, ugly cattle saunter over to the plump, beautiful seven delicious cattle, and they eat them whole. Pharaoh has a second dream. His dream goes along. And he has a dream that there are seven of the most delicious, succulent-looking ears of grain. The text tells us that they are plump and good, and they're all on one stalk. And they're just like, ah! They just have the aura of everything goodness around them. And then beside them, the same thing happens. You see these seven scrawny-looking, thin ears that the text tells us are blighted by the east wind, and they kind of come up along beside them, and what we hear in the text is, it's just minor key drag out. And what we see is those seven thin, blighted by the east wind grains turn, and they swallow whole the plump, delightful, delicious, good grains. So Pharaoh wakes up, he eats his Wheaties, and he is vexed. He's calling magicians, he's calling anyone and everyone who can interpret his dream. 
And he's incredibly frustrated because no one is able to interpret the dream. Look at verse 8 in chapter 41. It says, So in the morning his spirit was troubled. He sent and he called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret the dream that Pharaoh has. And then the cupbearer remembers. You've been in that, 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 that deal before, that, that situation, that moment where you're like, oh man, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, how long is it? Oh, it's been two years. This is so embarrassing. And he just says, hey, uh, boss, do you remember that time? It was a funny story. You threw me in jail. Um, there's this guy I met down there, and he can totally interpret dreams. That's the guy we need. That's the guy we need. You need, to, you need to bring him up. You need to let him interpret this dream. And so that's what Pharaoh does. That's what Pharaoh does. He, he brings him up and Joseph begins to interpret the dream. Look at verse 16. It says, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. When it comes for his time to interpret Pharaoh's dream, he says, listen, this isn't in me. This is something God will do. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So he goes and he interprets the dream. He says, listen, your two dreams are one. Your dream about the cows and your dream about the grains, they're one dream. This is what's going to happen. Egypt is going to experience seven years of plenty. It's going to be bumper crops year after year after year. And then there's going to be seven years of famine. It's, it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter all the industry you pour into it, you're not going to get anything. So what you need to do is to store up as much as you can for the seven so that you're, when it comes to the famine, you're ready. Pharaoh likes this idea. He says, this guy's sharp, this guy's sharp. I'm finally on to something. Verse 38, it says, and Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Pharaoh recognizes there's something different in him. Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you, and he appoints him second only underneath Pharaoh. In all the land, Pharaoh says, listen, I'm only going to rule in every way you're going to be my second. And so there he is, from favored child to man in the pit, to favored servant to man in jail, favored underneath Pharaoh. God is faithful. But now what we learn is that there is a time of famine that begins to cover the entire land. Verses 56 and 57. It says, so when the famine spread all over the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain because the famine was so severe in all the earth. Well, the famine was also severe where Jacob and his, and his sons lived. And so Jacob turns to his son. He says, listen, I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Y'all need to go down there. You need to buy some grain. But whatever happens, you're not taking Benjamin with, with you. And so he sends 10 of his sons to go and buy the grain. And the sons walk up. And who do they encounter? They encounter Joseph. I want you to think about something. It's been 22 years since his brothers have seen him. This isn't a six-month deal. This isn't a one-year deal. It's been 22 years. He was 17 when they sent him there. 
He was a young man. He was growing, but it's been 22 years. Over two years, likely, hardened in prison. They had seven years of plenty, and now they're two years into the drought, two years into the famine, and they show up. And so they don't recognize him. They don't recognize who this is that they're standing in front of. Chapter 42. Chapter 42 and verse 6. It says, now Joseph, Joseph was governor over all the land. He was the one who sold all the people the land. And Joseph's brothers came to him. And what did they do? They bowed themselves down before him with their faces to the ground. Do you remember back to his dream? Guys are out there and we're working and I put together my sheaves and then your sheaves gathered around it and they bowed down before him. Do you remember his dream? Joseph's dream coming to reality, seeing his brothers bow down before him. So Joseph recognizes his brothers. His brothers don't recognize him. And so he looks at them and he says, where have you came from? Who are you? And they say, well, we're 12 brothers, uh, but one of them is no more. And we have a younger brother, uh, uh, and he's, he, he, he's back at home with our dad. And, and uh, uh, we're, from, we're from, you know, just over the river and, and, and so. And uh, Joseph looks at him and he says, y'all are spies. You're spies. You've come here to spy out the nakedness of the land. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know what we said that let you think that, but listen, listen. We are honest men. Honest, everybody say it together. We are honest men. He says, no, you're, you're definitely spies. You're definitely spies. Now listen here, listen here. You need to go back. And you need to bring your, younger, your youngest brother here. And while you're doing that, I'm going to keep one of you here with me. Just so you can prove to me that you're not spies. And oh man, they are distraught and they're turning and they're talking to themselves. And what we read in the text in verse 21, it says, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And they're saying all this in front of Joseph, and they think that he doesn't know what they're talking about because there's an interpreter in between the two of them, and they're just thinking, oh, man, this is karma. Oh, what am I going to do? So Joseph takes Simeon. He binds his hands behind his back, and he takes him over, and he sends the brothers back to their father. But before he does, he fills their bag, and he takes all their money, and he puts their money back in the mouth of their bags. And so the brothers are walking back to their dad, and one of them happens to open his bag, and you can tell he breaks out in this cold sweat all over his body. He says, y'all are not going to believe this. My money is in my bag. Oh, man, this is not good. We were accused of being spies. Now we're going to be accused of being thieves. So they go home, and they begin to tell all this to Jacob. And they're like, Dad, you're not going to believe this. We got in this land, and he says, y'all are spies. And we're like, yo, check it. We're not spies. We're honest men, honest brothers. But he wouldn't believe us because all this younger brother stuff. And Jacob's like, why didn't you tell them you had a younger brother? And they're like, Dad, he knew everything about us. He's like, tell us about your dad. Tell us about this. Tell us about that. And we're just like, we're just pouring it out because, remember, we're very, very honest. 
So, so, so we, left, we, left, we left Simeon back there, but he's totally fine, totally fine. We just got to bring Benjamin back, and we're going to clear this whole mess up. And so Jacob's just, he's just apoplectic at this point, just, uh, uh, uh. he said, I've lost one son, I've lost two sons, you're going to cost me a third son, you've got to be kidding me. So they turn to their bags, they begin to open their bags, and lo and behold, what they find is all of their money's back in every single bag, and Jacob's like, eh, eh. You're not going back there. I'm not losing any more, sons. Look what's happened to me. You're not going back to this land. Fast forward. Fast forward. What we begin to recognize is that this famine that Joseph had previously said would last seven years is indeed incredibly intense. Verse 1, chapter 43 says, Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again and buy us a little food. And so they remind him of the story. And they remind him of all that would go on. And, and just how difficult it is. And so he says, okay, listen. You can take Benjamin. But this is what you need to do. You need to take gifts. You need to tell him, look, this is the money. But we're going to pay you twice. And we didn't steal it. And we're honest <clears throat> men. And, and, and all this. And everything's just going to be fine. And so they go back. And just this amazing series of events begin to unfold. They come before Joseph. These, <coughs> these, <coughs> I'm sorry, I have something in my throat. I'm going to say that. These honest men. And Joseph invites them into his house. And he frees Simeon to come there. And he invites them to a feast. And when they're in there in the feast, he has the brothers seated and he has the brothers served in their birth order. And they're all thinking, that's a little curious. And then when it comes time for Benjamin to be served, he gets a portion that is five times larger than all the others. And you know they got to be thinking, man, what is it with those guys? They get all the breaks. So then Joseph goes and, and he begins to have their bags filled. And he begins to, to, to have the grain put in their bags. And he does again. He says, listen, when you're filling their bags, I want you to put their money back in their bags. But then I want you to go to the youngest brother's bag. And I want you to take this silver cup. You know the silver cup, my special silver cup. Yeah, we know your silver cup. And I want you to take that silver cup, my special silver cup. I want you to put it in his bag. And when these guys get a little bit down the road, I want you to run up to them and say, what is this evil you have perpetrated against my master? You've stolen his silver cup. And so this is exactly what happens. They go, and, and, and they're a little bit down the road, and this guy on a horseback shows up, and he says, what is this evil you perpetrated against my master? And they're like, what's up? We're honest men. And he says, one of you stole his silver cup, and they're like, listen, none of us stole his silver cup. If you find a silver cup from any of us, we'll all be your servants. So we go, and they're all opening the bags, and lo and behold, the silver cup has happened to be found in Benjamin's bag. So he says, listen, you guys can go free. I'm going to take Benjamin back. And they're like, whoa, we can't let that happen. Dabble, flip. And so they go back with him. And they're headed back with him. And when they get in front of Joseph, this is what he says. He says, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose the hand the cupless fan shall be my servant. But for you, go in peace up to your father. And then Judah intercedes. Now, Judah in chapter 38 did something incredibly heinous, and we saw his character unfolding. 
But what we see here is his intercession on behalf of Benjamin. And so from verse 18 through verse 34, he begins to entreat. He begins to beg Joseph. He says, listen, you can't do this. You're going to kill our father. If we show up and Benjamin isn't with us, our father will die. Listen, keep me. Don't keep him. Let me be your servant. Let me be the one to go free. Because if we go back, he ends and he says, I fear, to see, I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Now Joseph has had his fun with his brothers. And he, is, he has pushed this so incredibly far, holding back who he is. But at the moment when he begins to recognize the devastation and the death, in fact, that he would bring upon his father, he is broken before his brothers. And chapter 45 opens up, and look at verses 1 through 8. It says, Then Joseph could control himself, then Joseph could not control himself any longer before all those who stood by him. And he cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that all the Egyptians heard it, all the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers couldn't believe his answers, for they were dismayed at his presence. It made no sense to them. 22, 23 years later, as they blinked before them, they didn't recognize this one dressed this way. They didn't recognize this one still alive. They didn't recognize this one with all of this power. They didn't recognize this one with all of this authority. 23 years passed. They did not recognize their brother. Joseph cries out to his brothers, come near to me. And he said to them, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Listen to this, y'all. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God is faithful. He says, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which neither the plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He's made me a father over Pharaoh. He's given me power and position. God is the one who sent me here. You see, as we look at the life of Joseph, we recognize that this isn't primarily a story about how God needed someone in Egypt to do something. You see, God needed to use all the events to orchestrate the affairs of the life of Joseph to make him be the man who would make the right choice when he could. So he suffered the difficulties of the pit. So he suffered the difficulties of an accusation. So he suffered the difficulties of imprisonment. So his character could be formed so that when he was given an opportunity to be faithful to God, to carry on the line of God, he would finally be the man of God in that moment. So as we reflect upon the life of Joseph, it gives us an inclination and it gives us an opportunity to recognize our ability to praise God for the difficulties of our lives. 
Because in the difficulties of our lives, God is creating in us a dependence upon him. He's creating in us a testimony that can declare his grace. It can declare his mercy. And it can declare his sustaining power in the midst of those difficulties. And for some of us, the difficulties that God allows to take place in our lives is knocking off the rough edges in the sin in our lives that is currently winning the race. In Joseph, we see an opportunity to praise God for the difficulties. In Joseph, we see an opportunity to praise God for the setbacks in our lives. Many of us, our stories, as we begin to examine, we see ourselves and we're moving along this path and all of a sudden we're derailed. And when we're derailed, we look at God in the sense of anger and frustration. And we're wondering, what's next and where do I go from here? But in the life of Joseph, we see one who, when he encountered setbacks, recognized the faithfulness of God in the setback and dedicated himself to the Lord, continuing on. So in Joseph, we see an opportunity to praise God for the setbacks we experience in life. In Joseph, we see an opportunity to praise God for the weaknesses we have in our life because we recognize that in our weaknesses, we are solely dependent and reliant upon his grace. Joseph's weaknesses were pride. They were veiled arrogance. He loved having received the favor of his father. And you even see him wrestling with it there when he has all the power and all the position in Egypt, toying with his brothers instead of being honest. It took the speech of Judah to break his heart of pride and arrogance, to find in meeting the needs of others a more important, a more noble and worthy task. And so we recognize God gives us the difficulties of our lives. He gives us the weaknesses we are currently experiencing so that we might be more dependent upon him. Man, if you're currently experiencing the brokenness that God has brought into your life, don't look at it and be frustrated. Don't look at it and lament. Don't look at it and say, why me, God? But look at it and say, God, what would you have me do? How would you have me to see you? How would you grow me in the midst of this? Who would you have me to minister to in the midst of my brokenness, in the midst of my weakness? In the example of Joseph, we praise God for his son. You see, in the life of Joseph, we saw one who was abused, we saw one who was rejected, we saw one who was thrown into a pit, who was sold into slavery, who was finally exalted and able to serve his brothers. But in the person of Jesus, we don't see somebody whose circumstance and who powerful men overcame. You see, in the person of Jesus, we see the mighty king, the sovereign Lord of the universe, all-powerful, who made himself nothing. Philippians 2 said he took the form of a servant. Jesus submitted himself to allow the sovereign king of the universe to be beaten at the hand of his creation to be mocked by those that he had formed. To be whipped by those that he had fashioned. 
to be crucified on behalf of all those who hated him. 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 3 and verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. In Joseph, we see one who overcame the difficulties that life sent his way. In Jesus, we see one who willingly submitted himself to the sovereign plan of God so that all of humanity might be saved in him. The righteous for the unrighteous. Our good King Jesus came and died on our behalf. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our brokenness. He knows our disappointments. And he calls us to him to be made whole. He calls us first to him to receive salvation. That in him we might receive the forgiveness of our sins. Listen to this, Christian. Jesus calls us to himself over and over again over the course of our lives because we never grow strong enough in our faith that we aren't firmly dependent upon the cross of Christ. We never grow so strong in our self-assurance and independence in our Christianity that we outgrow Jesus. Man, we need his grace in the morning. We need him as we wake up. We need him as we face the difficulties of each day. And we need him to temper our celebrations in our times of rejoicing. And we need Jesus now. Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray that you would move in our hearts, that you would stir our affections for you. We need Jesus. So God, I pray that you would be with those who have not yet submitted themselves to your son. God, that by the power of your spirit, you would convict them of their sin and that you would lead them in paths of righteousness. That they would feel themselves within their hearts saying, I don't know what I need, I don't know what I need to do, but I know I need this Jesus. God, that today would be the day that they come to meet and know Jesus. And God, I pray that you would work in the hearts of the Christians in this room and in this hearing. Those of us who feel that we're doing just fine, we have received salvation, but we are doing just fine on our own. Would you break our hearts to self-sufficiency? Would you remind us of the goodness of being broken so that we might draw closer to Jesus? Your word tells us that all those who are weary and heavy laden are to draw near to you. So God, would you draw us close to you once again? We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.